0: This is the Real Estate Addicts podcast, episode thirty-seven, with your hosts Ray Hurto, HRV Homes, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes,
1: Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston,
2: and today we are joined by Michael LeBlanc from UTL. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. First the, podcast. First podcast. Yeah, I, I've I've uh, I've never done one of these, but uh, I, I did do a TikTok with my daughter once.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel really old when a couple weeks ago I actually Googled what TikTok was because I had no idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I feel like, uh, the kids just keep finding things that us, I guess we're older people now just (laughs) (laughs) don't get, uh, don't get anymore. So first it was Snapchat. Now we're moving
2: on. So, um,
1: was the TikTok recording how you spent the 70 degree, uh, weekend we just
2: had? No, it was more of the, uh, over the holiday break kind of boredom. Uh, what are we going to do now?
1: Did you get outside, enjoy that, that sun in January?
2: I did. I did. Um, it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, th- this weather is certainly playing well on my heating bills right now. So it's-
0: <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You have a, a firm, Util Architecture
1: and, uh, urban planning.
0: and Urban Planning. And we were talking before we went live here uh, about the size of your company. It's not a, uh, not a small company, I'd say. 64 people?
2: No, we're not small. And, and- it always shocks me to, to think that we've got 64 people. Right, It's kind of unbelievable. Um, we, you know, we obviously started much smaller than that. Um, what I always like to say, though, is that having 64 people have enough firepower to, to take on just about anything. But at the same time, having four principals, um, we're really like smaller studios of, you know, 16 or 18 or so. And so we we have, uh, I'd like to say, the best of both worlds. We keep a great studio environment while also being able to take on much larger projects.
0: So Cool. Can you explain to our listeners... Your two arms there, so what do you offer? i mean we were I think most listeners are familiar with the architectural side of uh, services. Can you explain a little bit about how you interact on an urban planning side
2: sure i mean i I think our work breaks down probably along the lines of about sixty five percent architecture building related kind of services and maybe thirty five percent of the urban urban design urban planning. The two sides of the office are not really that separate. You know, there's somewhat different staff, although a lot of the staff from either side can can go back and forth. Um, we always say that's the way you raise your stock value and, and at Util is, is you have the ability to do both. But we certainly rely heavily on and, and on the urban planning side of the, um, uh, of the office from my perspective being on the architectural side. When we start any pro- uh, project and we're looking at how we're going to get through approvals, how we're going to, you know, how we're going to sell a vision for it, how we're actually going to make it become a part of the city or neighborhood that it's, you know, resides within. um, The urban planning, the big picture is always so important, right? Understanding how you approach the site, understanding if you live there or you work there or whatever you do in that particular building, what's available to you for urban amenities around, right? And, And trying to figure out how you begin to springboard a design based on that.
0: So if I'm at a community meeting and somebody says, I'd like to have a sound study or a traffic study or a Sunlight study or whatever study they usually ask for during these community meetings, is that uh, a
2: primary service or is that just me being odd? That we provide? Yeah, yeah. We farm that stuff out. I mean, you know, those sorts of things are the real specialties, particularly, you know, well, I mean, sun studies and all that. Those are easy. Uh, Any 3D modeling software you've got these days is going to have the capacity to do that very quickly. It's really things like wind, sound, those things that you have to kind of go out outside the office to, um, uh, to get a, a much more professional expertise, uh, you know, perspective on these things. So so that stuff we farm out. But I, I, I don't think... They are part and parcel with the bigger picture, right? I mean, I think we always start by thinking big and then working our way back to small. Start with generals and go to specifics.
3: Now, out of that 65% architecture work that you do, how much of that is with developers? What's, who's your main client,
2: Del? That continues to to evolve. We built the office on housing back in the day, and uh, that was primarily with developers. Since then, we're always trying to push ourselves into, uh, into the institutional sectors, uh, education, all of that, um, you know, we find having a diversity of clients makes life easier when things start to go south, right? When when housing inevitably starts to slow down a little bit, when you've got these other things to kind of fall back on, um, it, it's what makes you a more viable company. So in terms of percentages, I would say we, well, I don't know, it's hard to say. On the architecture side, I'd say roughly half of what we do is with, is with developers. A lot of it is with higher ed and a lot of it is, is with corporate interiors uh, that my partner Mimi has been really pushing rates recently and having a, you know, a huge amount of success there. So
1: That's great. So we know uh, of you, Teal, and your great work, but we kind of skipped by a little bit of your history as an architect and your background. Can you share with us a little of how you got into the profession and um, you know, what keeps you excited every morning and uh, you know, your favorite part of the job?
2: Yeah, I can't remember a time that I didn't want to be an architect. Yeah. Buildings were, were to me always a fascinating thing. He was very young. I was always sketching buildings, drawing buildings, and, um, and particularly urban buildings. Um, so for me, it was always, that's just, it was just never a question. It's always going to happen. I went to undergraduate uh, for fine arts, though. So knowing I wanted to be an architect, I said, all right, I'm going to go to school for fine arts. D- don't ask me what the decision-making process was there. Uh, but um, it might have had something to do with uh, the woman I eventually married um, and the fact that that school didn't have an architecture program. So <laughs> I did, however, though, go back, get my graduate degree in architecture at Arizona State, which was totally great. Um, and out of that, started working for Wendell Burnett's office in Phoenix, which is um, just a, an absolutely spectacularly innovative office. Um, small at the time, I was the first employee, but that was a small office already making kind of big waves in the, in the design world. After spending, uh, you know, about five years total in Arizona, my wife and I moved back to Boston, where we, um, we you know, kind of figured we're going to put our roots down here. And ended up, uh, I ended up working for Machado and Silvetti for about seven years. Um, and that's where I met all three of my current partners. Uh, we all were there. And from there, we kind of sprung board and, and started Util, kind of one at a time. Tim, Matthew, myself, and Mimi, kind of in that order. You know, it was a it's classic. It's a funny,
1: like, growth pattern for architecture firms in the city. You can almost do like a family tree of of certain shops, having started there, moved here. It's
3: like uh, NFL coaches, the coaching tree. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: I think that's true. You know, if you look at Machano Civetti, I don't think that, I, it's kind of the the Bauhaus of Boston in some ways. There, there, that particular office has, um, has kind of cleaved off more, you know, really great firms than I think any other that I know of. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, when you look from Nada, yeah. uh, Odin's LO, our office, uh, Over Under, um, I mean— there's countless others that I'm yeah. not thinking of right now, but um, but really great offices that all uh, that all kind of came from from that particular uh, office. So,
1: so would, would you say that Util has a signature style?
2: Definitely not. I always say we're we're a well, we always say Util is a, is a design firm built like a think tank, right? And really, what that means is that before we start thinking about what it's going to look like, we we try to solve the question of what is it with a, an incredibly collaborative group of people at the office. Um, we try very hard to keep a very flat hierarchy within the office so that everyone's voice, you know, is is meaningful and, and heard. That um, as we work on projects, um, we start, like I said earlier, with the big picture, we we work to specifics. And so really it becomes a research of your context. And w- what I mean by that is, I mean, everyone thinks context, all right, what's the building next to you look like? And are you big, small? What's your detailing? What period? But there's also an, an economic context, right? There's uh, there's a political context. There's a a regulatory context, and so once you get into um, studying the specifics of your of your site and all of those um, all of those particular, let's say, either benchmarks, milestones, or hurdles that you need to get over, then you can really start designing the project. So as a result, every project we do, I like to I like to think, has its its own you know its own kind of unique personality. Do you have a sweet spot in terms of project size? You know, there obviously there's a lot of tri- triple-deckers,
0: but do you also look at mixed use, certain number of units, or does
2: it not really matter? Um, we say our sweet spot is anything between a construction budget of half a million dollars and $500 million. So, uh, <laughs> so, All right, that's uh, quite a big
1: window.
2: <clears throat> no, I, I, I think it's a little bit the the, um, the the beauty of having a firm with such diverse such a diverse staff that we that we really have people who, who truly enjoy doing the small little nine unit project, and people who truly enjoy doing the you know the two hundred billion dollar you know behemoth uh, you know high rise, and so um, so we you know we love to work at all those scales. It's a little bit like our housing work spans from truly subsidized affordable to inclusionary affordable to mid market to super high end, and you know, we always say that like doing the affordable stuff informs the, the, the high end market rate stuff just as much as, as vice versa. And we also think that, that operating at at multiple scales, you know, tiny projects to huge projects, we always say it it helps you keep your, your design muscles from atrophying, Mm -hmm. right? Is that, that you keep yourself nimble when you're thinking at various scales, you, 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 you always look at things in a more unique way. um, And it, you know, we think it's a great way to keep people's interest uh, locked in. So if we have somebody who's working on a huge project, we go out of our way to take somebody off that project for a week at a time, put them on some tiny thing, let them get a whole nother flavor for a few weeks and then come back and they're, right, they're back situated on their three year long big project.
3: Can we talk about scale for, for a few minutes? You know, you, you have obviously you have 64 employees. How long did it take you to get there? how do you know when it's the right time to bring someone in and what that role needs to be? You know, Ray and I, you know, have been talking about starting to grow our business. And I think we go back and forth a lot on, you know, what the, that particular role needs to be and when is an appropriate time. So can you just, you know, just talk about kind of the growth of the company and, um, and any challenges that you may have had on the, along the way?
2: Sure. Uh, so, so we, you know, <clears throat> obviously we started small and got big, but that didn't mm-hmm. happen overnight. And the process of bringing people in is always a little bit of a leap of faith. I mean, occasionally you've got work locked in, you're ready to go, and you you just need people, and you're out there scurrying and trying to find them. But frequently we will run into somebody who we don't have a specific task or job or or project to put them on, but they're they're just so damn good that we need them, right? And we we know we need them, and they fill a, a certain gap for us, and so. We do, we call those opportunity hires and, and um, you know, we do that all the time. I think we were in a great little space up above the 7-Eleven on uh, Summer Street for a long time. That was about, I want to say 2,400 square feet or so. It was around about time we had 38 people in that space that we realized that this was not a good situation. And, um, and, and so we. One bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I felt bad for the bathroom. <laughs> we then uh, decided, you know, it was time. I lost my desk space. I was like working on a, a window ledge with yeah. my laptop, you know, because there were much more productive people who needed bigger space <laughs> than I had, and and so we uh, we we did make the leap to move from there over to 115 Kingston Street. So we went from about 2,600 square feet to 6,400 uh, pretty quickly. But that was offered to us in one of two packages. You could we, we could either do just um, uh, four thousand and. What do they have? They had a space that was 4,000, a space that was 2,400, or we could take them both at one time. We're like, geez, we don't even have enough people to fill the, the 4,200, but yeah, let's just do it, right? We've <laughs> got both of them. we got both spaces, and, and literally within, within a short period of time, all of a sudden, you know, there was enough work to fill it. We actually think that the space we were in had a pretty, you know, pretty strong um, role in the size we got to. All of a sudden, we had a space that looked legit and professional, and our clients were bringing their bankers in to have meetings and doing all that kind of thing. And so we we suddenly became, um, I think, somewhat legitimized by uh, having a nicer space. That's
1: how we feel about our podcast studio. <laughs>
2: this is this is beautiful. This is all you ever need right here? Yeah. <laughs> I'd never leave if I had this. We're a um, uh,
0: nine by nine room here in an odd shape. <laughs> uh, Michael, I'd say perhaps a um, an exaggerated. Criticism of architects, and I don't, I don't want to become coming across here as critical, but uh, a lot of architects obviously pride themselves on winning awards versus you know designing to a construction budget. And we've always had our challenges of, you know, especially with the exterior shell of the building. How do you keep things affordable um, all around? What do you
2: feel about that? Do you feel the best architects are able to do both? They're not mutually exclusive in any way, I don't think, and and I I think. you know, in some ways, if you can do both, you're probably the better architect than the one who can only get the awards or, uh, you know, but but I, I I it's an interesting point because we went for probably 10 years at UTL under the mantra that we will never try to get published in a an industry magazine and never try to uh, submit for an award. We're just going to do good work and hopefully people will come to us. And at a certain point, we realize, all right, getting the awards, getting in the magazines actually has some value, right? Has value in And how you, um, the resumes that come in, it has value in what you can show to clients and, you know, what they think about your company. So, so there is a sort of inherent value in that stuff. I always say that, like, if you, if you can't solve the economic part of it, then, then you shouldn't be doing it.
0: So is it just getting creative with the materials then to keep a nice, I shouldn't say a nice, just to keep like a, a really unique design, but also make that budget conscious?
1: Michael, the first time we met, you really impressed me. You talked about how you had right-sized a facade by sizing the panels in a really efficient way to minimize waste. And when you're talking about $110 a square foot facade, that matters.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's never a simple, it's never a simple answer. That that's maybe the simplest it could get right there. It's like we just, we, you know, we want to do a panelized facade. In that case, the, the panels were all varying sizes. We knew what the 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 base standardized panel came in, and we just used you know, dimensions that uh, that were derivative of that, and that was simple. Um, and and by the way, we didn't do that the first time. We we did a different way, and then we realized that we had thirty percent waste, and we're like, all right, we can fix. <laughs> we can solve this pretty easily. I also think there there are there's ways to the lowest budget number isn't always the most profitable, right? Um, sometimes it's it's you know it's always like what is the cost of the project versus what kind of revenues will it will it bring in? On a a project you know that we did over in the South End with Peter Ross called the Gerard we looked at a, a, a recently innovative, um, structural solution, which allowed for higher ceiling heights in a lower floor to floor height. That gave us a whole bunch of great opportunities. One was that it got us a whole additional floor of space within a 70 foot height limit, which was not only the zoning, but also the high rise limit. Um, so that, that keeps our costs, you know, in check in that way, but also, um, you know, having an additional 25 units per, you know, in the building with the same, essentially the same envelope, uh, you know, that has a, a sort of great payback. And so when you think about if you can reduce, like, your floor-to-floor heights without reducing your ceiling height, because that's an important part of revenues, right? Um, if you can reduce your floor-to-floor heights by, let's say, a foot, uh, you know, per floor, that's in a seven-story building or six-story building, that's six or seven feet around the entire perimeter of the building. If the building has a perimeter of 800 feet, you know, times six feet, times 110 bucks a square foot, that's a huge number, right? Yeah. That's our fees right there, you know? it's like. Yeah. So it's always a matter of, like, trying to find the solution that that doesn't uh, compromise, you know, the sort of marketability or design intent, but finds a different way to solve the problem.
1: Can you go a little deeper on the Gerard? I think it's a, a spectacular building. Um, so you, you studied different superstructures or framing approaches, and one of them yielded you an additional floor staying within the height and offered very strong floor-to-ceilings within the units? Yeah so can yeah. can you talk about what you, where you landed and what uh, what other alternatives maybe more traditional alternatives you looked at first
2: Obviously the first traditional alternatives we looked at were a traditional sectional steel frame or a uh, or a wood frame building because it was we knew it was going to be below high rise um and you know that was kind of the um that was the marching orders we were given um and so the um uh, the reality is if you're going to do a steel building um you've got to allow for a lot more a lot more floor to floor height because when you start to coordinate your utilities and things like that amongst you know you've got your deck but then you've got your beams which drop down and trying to get around those is you know you can do it in some cases you can do you can cut a certain amount of holes through those but it, there are limits to that the traditional wood framing also just the amount of dimension you need just for your structure then when you start to add in you know soundproofing acoustics all those kinds of uh, um uh, other issues plus finishes, um, that dimension gets fairly large. So
1: are there any rules of thumb you use for those, for a wood structure? Do you usually figure 14 inches or so for between the joist, the subfloor, the this? 16 inches typically. 16, okay. And structural steel, is there any?
2: More like 20.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you landed on a structural stud or a light gauge?
2: We landed on, on, on a pre-panelized structural uh, metal bearing wall, metal stud bearing wall. So they came to site all pre-done on these, you know, on the back of these, you know, flatbeds. Uh, they were craned into place. They all got propped up, and then as soon as they were put in place, uh, metal decking went over the top of those. And it was a particular kind of metal decking which allows for about a fourteen foot span. That's the limitation of that particular system right there. Is if you can't live with spaces that are not less than fourteen feet, then you have to go somewhere else with it. But what that did is it it took a composite deck, tied it into the the, the pre-panelized metal stud walls. And then you pour concrete over the top of it, and you end up with a total six-inch structural deck, um, which has great acoustic properties. It's got, you know, very good mm. solidity. You know, you walk on it, no you bounce. feel like you're in a, yeah. no bounce. <laughs> Our client in that case was very smart when he talked to the, um, well, he was talking to us and the contractors, and he was just saying he wasn't looking to save money on that building. He had a budget, and, he, and his whole take was, I want the best building I can get for this amount of money, right? And so as we went through all of the different options, you know, the idea of of going from wood uh, to this uh, metal deck um, or metal metal stud wall and, and and concrete deck system seemed great because of all of those. It's it's more of an institutional grade uh, of construction, and also allowed us to to reduce our floor to floor height. So that's a great win. What's one of your biggest pet peeves with developers? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys are all developers, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll give you the sugar-coated version of that. Uh,
1: or conversely, what makes a good developer partner?
2: I think a couple of things. You know, it's it's funny. A, a developer I work with right now, and who's also I consider a very good friend, is asking me about similar questions about you know um, about what happens when he starts to to scale up his his company and add people to it, and and how do, how does he manage that? And th- and that that plays a little bit into to answering your question, which is for me. The best developers are the ones where the decision makers are closest to their content providers, and what that means is, if you are the decision maker of a development company, you have to have constant access to your your architects, your engineers, your graphics people, your branding people, all of that. That's critical because otherwise, we find when when those types of content or vision related aspects of a, of a project are delegated, they're inevitably misinterpreted, and there's inevitably a We do all this work, okay, now the decision maker sees it, and now you're backtracking because it's all wrong. Keeping that sort of decision-making process as close to the process of design and innovation, I think, is critical.
1: I think it's also a realistic um, expectation of budget and options. So I think that a lot of time is wasted and resources by developers who don't understand that what's about to come out of the oven is maybe very expensive and far beyond beyond the budget. And instead of just constantly trying to shape the design all throughout towards the most cost-efficient, budget-friendly options that 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 meet your project needs. Yeah,
3: you know, I also feel that you know developers sometimes, a lot of developers have unrealistic expectations as to what their budget is versus what their expected type of and style and finished building is going to look like. You know, I feel that they're always under-budgeting for what they think they can get out of it.
1: Just nothing's worse than, like, I worked at Suffolk Construction for a number of years and, you know, finish a whole budgeting process. You have a set of drawings on your desk the size of a Bible, and the budget is exploded, and you're basically starting back at square one. And all of those things, with with some proper guidance, I feel like could have been massaged into the design as it how was, much time as, as it was evolving. Save? how yeah. much
3: time would
2: that save? How much time would that save? It's totally true. I, I, I think... um the process of, of of designing a building is a little well it, it's it's one that's kind of emotionally you know packed um as you're as you're developing ideas you're you're coming up with options you're looking you're starting to do renderings your clients look at it, they love it you know everyone falls in love with the design and you know you're kind of emotionally attached to it and then all of a sudden you find out oh i can't afford this design and and <laughs> it's it's traumatizing both not only for us i know but also for the developers we work with but i mean we we really feel like we were we we find ourselves in that position rarely. Um, we used to find ourselves in that position a lot, and I think we've been able to 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 get ourselves to the point where we're tracking costs all over the city all the time. We're not cost estimators, but we we kind of know what's where things are coming in, and we know when it, when a developer is coming to us with a with a somewhat unrealistic um, budget in mind. But um, <clears throat> I did want to go back also to, to to add something to the question about what makes a good developer, um, and I do think it depends on. You know, if we're talking about residential development, um, uh, or even for that matter, you know, commercial speculative development, I, I think I think the developer that knows their market is the, is generally going to be the best developer. They're the ones who, who, when they can give the the architect or the designer, a a clear vision of who it is they're designing for, that tends to be the the most efficient process, right? You know, if they know their market, they know if they know that designing in South Boston is very different than designing in the South End two totally different kinds of buyers, right? Not all that different, but somewhat different, right? And the nuances that are important, right? You know, whether it's a closet space question or a, you know, depths of walls, so you feel like you're in a solid building question and how you deal with a window jam. Um, there's all of these things that, that go into understanding who your buyer is. Are they okay with walking up and down stairs or not, mm-hmm. right? Are they, do they want a flat? Do they want more light, less light? When you've got a client who has a really good handle on that, you know, and they know how to guide the process. I, I think it it helps so much. We yeah. always feel like we're helpful yeah. in, in in defining those parameters as well um, within at least within the city of Boston. but
1: yeah, certainly that strong vision for your building and what you're trying to accomplish at the end. If we circle back to cost real quick and you know
0: without giving away the crown jewels, how do you sort of build a budget for a, a client in terms of your design fees? Obviously, you know, you start off with, basic schematics and and map, building massing, and then you get into more of, um, you know, kind of a layout. And then once everybody's happy and things get approved, you move on to all of the construction documents. So is it kind of fixed price? Does it have multiple components with
2: hourly? Or what would you like to s- tell everybody about that? <laughs> well, we have, we have this conversation in the office all the time. And it depends on the type of project, of course. But if, if we want to just sort of keep it in like the, the residential development world, there are certainly industry standards, right? And there's, you know, there's the low industry fee, there's the mid market fee, and there's the high fee. And that's not the kind of unit you're developing or, or designing. It's, it's the kind of architect you're going to. And that's, you know, the kind of base level sparse service versus the kind of, okay, this is mediocre service versus high service. So we always do a work plan and figure out, you know, how many, how many people is it going to take to do this job over what period of time, right? When do we have to scale up? Are we going to have three or four people in CDs? Are we going to have one or two people in CA? Um, CA becomes the hardest part of it for us to, to kind of manage because... Just to, just
0: to clarify for everybody, CA is construction, construction administration.
2: administration. Yes, sorry. Uh, CDs and construction documents. When you get into the building, you know, the construction process, the architect loses a whole bunch of control over the situation, right? the The, the contractor, it becomes their site. They're pushing the schedule. They're doing, um, you know, th- their work, and they 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 have every incentive to do as quickly as they can. Um, but at the same time, schedules drag on. You know, things take longer time. Questions come back, which are maybe not real questions, but questions designed to stall the process a little bit. <laughs> you know, to you know distract us from what might what else might be going on. So we lose a lot of the control there. And CA is the hardest part of the project or the hardest hardest phase to keep. Staffed, you know, correctly, and to still be able to build, you know, our, our all of our hours on which we, we we tend not to be able to. But we, you know, we try to put all of our consultants in place, and then we then we take it and we put it against. Uh, well, we test it a couple of different ways against the the potential project. One is, you know, based on what we think the construction cost is, um, are we within the general percentages which are acceptable? And we also do it against the square footage of the project, right? And how how many dollars per square foot are we kind of allowing for in certain terms of design? We just had this, this conversation with a, a client who's doing a, a micro-unit project. And the building's not particularly big, but the number of units is really quite large. And so there were, there were some misunderstandings, um, probably on both of our part, about how much it should cost for design fees. Um, in one case, you know, their argument was, well, it's a small building. It shouldn't be that much. And, our, and, you know, our argument was, well, they're tiny. There's a lot of units. There's a lot of kitchens, a lot of bathrooms. They're tiny. They're all going to be accessibility Swiss watches that we have to get right. Um, so there's really a lot more dollars per square foot of design time in, in in the building in general.
1: Are there any general guidelines that you could provide our listeners if they're doing a very early pro forma and trying to think about how much they'll spend on design is there a range that you might be able to offer, as far as a percent of construction costs, or a price per foot for architecture?
2: It really depends on the type of project, the market you're after, the size of the project. Obviously, as you as you, as you get bigger, the the fee percentages do come way mm-hmm. down.
1: Um, I mean, government projects are four percent of construction costs, or something like that. No, i no, heard that like if you do a public library, your fee is tied to construction costs. It is. And and they set a standard rate, or it, they it do.
2: moves. Yeah, they do, <laughs> which I think is actually quite good. I mean, the the um, it could be a little higher. That's for sure. It's yeah. not four percent. It, it, it there's a scale, right? Oh yeah. So if you go right to the city of Boston they, on their website, they mm-hmm. they have a um, a scale of you know if a project is zero to one million, one to two million, two to five million, five to ten, and so on, and then they also further categorize that by. Is it new construction? Is it renovation? Is it monumental? Mm-hmm. You know, like City Hall. What kind of building is it? Right. Well, it's sort of it's sort of a, a factor of the size and complexity mm-hmm. uh, that they factor into it. And so this whole sliding scale, which ranges from you know low fee, low percentages to, to reasonably high percentages in certain cases. What I like about that, I I do wish it were a little higher than than it is. But what I like about it is that when we compete for a project. we're not competing on price. Mm. They're competing on qualifications. And so they pick the best firm to do the job. And that firm goes into it fully knowing where the fees are going to be. So there's no arguing about that.
1: It creates a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem for younger firms. And maybe you had this frustration in your earlier days. I imagine that a group that's just starting out and wants those types of projects can't get their foot in the door because they don't have previous related projects. And so now you have a catch-22.
2: Yeah, 100%. There was a moment in time where at the state level, right? We'll we'll skip the city for a moment. And and, and at the state level, I attended a, a, a an evening session at the B, at the BSA where I think it was Greg Bialeky from the from, you know, working with the state was proposing this idea that um that basically how do we get younger firms into state jobs, right? We want these younger innovative firms. Boston's full of these older established sometimes not quite as exciting <laughs> firms you know but frequently Starchy. very good yeah you know they had a sort of monopoly in all of those types of projects <clears throat> the, the and there were a lot of cases where younger firms were were like joint venturing with the with the more established firms to try to to try to come up with a more innovative team and the state frowned upon that at the time so the goal i think of that was to um was to figure out a way that younger firms could maybe that joint ventures would become maybe more attractive to the the state agencies that were you know hiring architects and design services, or that they would you know try very hard to um, to pull firms in that had less experience on smaller jobs and build them up over a period of time. I'm not sure whatever happened with that program. It, it, yeah. uh, it, it, uh, it never seemed to fully materialize. Um, but I do see some, some really great firms these days getting, getting public projects. I mean, I think the, yeah. the Boston Public Library system is, yeah. uh, and, and with you know um, PFD at the City of Boston, Public Facilities Department, I think they're hiring some of the best architects in the city. And I think they're one of the best patrons of architecture that we have in the city right now. Do you do any work outside of Massachusetts? We do some. A lot of it is the planning work. The planning work tends to be much broader for us. Um, doing a lot of, we 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 are doing a lot of work in Detroit right now. Did work in Atlanta, um, West Coast, uh, a lot of work over in the Gulf region, uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai and and um, uh, Doha. Hmm. Um, so the uh, for some reason the the, the planning work uh, seems to be a little more exportable. Um, you know, it doesn't require you know feet on the ground quite as much and. You know, so it's 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 a little more nimble in that sense, and, and able to move around the country and the world more more readily. So I just want to talk at a high level about just urban de, urban
3: design and um, urban planning in general. Specifically, just on the coast, and the, you know, costs are going up from base, both from a housing standpoint and from a build cost standpoint. Obviously, the biggest question in the room, and everyone says supply, supply, supply. On the other side, you have people, ta- you know, affordable, affordable, affordable going back to the community process how do you educate the public on you know showing them that the this particular building that's very dense can benefit the neighborhood
2: i think in a little way it's 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 sort of educating the 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 people whose neighborhood you're about to you know impact and and i i i don't use the word education to be in any way pejorative. I, I think there's just some people who aren't, who aren't thinking about the relationships between certain types of, uh, of, you know, impacts and things like that. So for instance, I'll go back to the dot .av uh, zoning process, which I thought was run remarkably well by the by the BPDA. There were uh, uh, just a number of, of workshops that they would have where they'd invite the public in <clears throat> and they would ask them like, what are the things you want in your neighborhood, right? And people like, more parks, more parking, you know, fewer units. You know, <laughs> reservation. <laughs> yeah. All the things that, you know, uh, I mean, if you live in a neighborhood, you, you, can, um, you can absolutely understand and sympathize with why someone would be asking and hoping for that. Then the question sort of came back. So after, after looking at all of the different, you know, responses and said, all right, but if you want to make sure that everyone provides two parking spaces with every, you know, apartment or unit, you understand that that apartment has to increase in price by $100,000, right? Or more. If you want to have less of those units because you want more park space, well, then there's more demand on those units. So you understand that those units will start to become more expensive, right? So you can't you can't have the the affordability component and the parking component and the more green space component all together w- without creating a highly exclusive uh you know price point on, on, on all these units. So when people were then, you know, who who don't necessarily think in terms of urban planning or design or development, we started to ask these questions like, "Well, would you rather have a unit cost this, and have there only be one parking space for every, you know, uh, for every two units, rather than cost this and have two parking spaces for every unit? Which would you prefer? Oh, well, I take the lower price yeah, in a second, right. right? Of course, yeah. So, so I think there was um, that was a great process. I thought of 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 getting people to kind of understand." the ramifications of the wish list, right? That you can't always have your cake and eat it too, and that there are going to be certain push and pull. The other question was, um, or or, or the other thing that came out of a lot of those was that there needs to be more ground floor retail, right? Uh, In certain areas. And so, um, so part of the of the the thinking through of that is that if we want to have more of that ground floor region, more coffee shops, more restaurants, more, more of these things that we can use every day, well, you need more, more units to 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 kind of sustain those things, right? So all of these things are so dynamically interconnected um, that as you as you start to pull back on density or push things apart, they they fall apart very quickly, right? As you start to to air out the city, it actually, you know it It stops working very quickly. Um, so I, I think people began to understand you know to understand that with like particularly with the Don have study. and and I think the results of that study were you know proof in the the pudding in terms of being able to convince a neighborhood that you know there are certain places where you should have three hundred you know foot high buildings and you should have high density um and and doing it you know, kind of willfully and saying, yeah, this works for us, uh, you know. It's almost like creating a little
0: micro economy. And, and if you're given that blank slate where you where you do have that opportunity, which is what that .av um, stretch represents, which is almost a blank slate, you would need the density, like you said, and you would need that ground floor commercial. And I think going back to the parking, because that's almost one of the most substantial and, and heated uh, items that that people are pushing for you kind of get away from needing the parking and the cars because you have everything available. And now your community is more walkable. And it is almost like a small little niche community. And um, which is funny because that's a lot of things that people are asking for. And it just seems like they're very apprehensive to the density and the height and the lack of parking. But
1: yeah. So on a related note, (laughs) um, you guys were involved in Somerville's um, new zoning code, which is form-based zoning, as compared to traditional zoning. Um, are you happy with the results? And um, do you think that this type of zoning, this form-based zoning, is um, is an improvement from what we previously had?
2: So, first off, I, I should qualify that our participation in that was mostly graphic, that we were helping the the, the sort of visualization of of, of certain standards, um, and we weren't necessarily involved with making you know the rules and all that. I, I think. We were aware of them as they're happening. Mm-hmm. I think we supported them very much. I think it's, the jury is still out, but I think the Somerville zoning, I think, is unique from anything else we've seen so far is that, that it's enormously user-friendly, right? I, I think anybody can, can, can start flipping through that zoning, understand like what kind of zone their particular lot is in, what's allowable there. And with, within two or three pages of, of kind of thumbing through, you can find out like, what can I do and what can I not do? So from that aspect, I think it's it's totally awesome. I think it can takes to define
1: it a little bit. I'm sorry, like what is form-based zoning?
2: Well, form-based zoning is is um, zoning which uh, doesn't rely on FAR essentially as its as its primary limit limitation of of um, of how much density or bulk you can have it on a particular site. What it does is it tries to it tries to define setbacks and height. Uh, In certain neighborhoods so that things have somewhat of a compatibility um, that where we've got, um, you know, a neighborhood where you want buildings to be detached and separated, that that's clearly defined and how much they have to be and where you want buildings, you know, side by side party wall conditions that that's clearly defined. So as a result, you know, I think it puts a lot of puts a lot back on the architects and the designers to be able to kind of, you know, be clever with that form based zoning and and figure out what's the best way to kind of work or navigate within it. Um, you know, I do think um, one of the, the things that Somerville is unique um, or is unique about Somerville is that it's, from a commercial standpoint, it's it's it lacks commercial, you know, uses and revenues more so than any other city, you know, of its size. It's kind of why it was the, um, for a long time, the densest city in the country, because it's almost all exclusively residential. And it's not tall residential for the most part, but it's just dense, continuous, no breaks, all residential everywhere. One of the interesting parts of the current zoning there is that um, they've tried to zone certain minimum uh, square footages of your total building size that dictate how many units you can have in that building. So for instance, uh, and there's density bonuses built into it. So for instance, um, in certain areas, you need to have 1,100 square feet of building, uh, or I'm sorry, 1,100 square feet per unit of building size. So if you're doing small units, right? You have a hard time filling up that building, right? you You're left with all this zoning on the table. But what kind of forces the issue of is it makes you then say, all right, i'm gonna I'm gonna pack some retail into this, maybe even some second floor commercial space. And that way I can get the square footage I wanted to get the number of units I wanted, right? So it's a way of either creating bigger family units or if you're gonna do these micros and smaller units that you you then are, you know, looking for different ways to, to kind of supplement that. And it creates better mixed-use buildings in general. So it also solves the problem of their their overburden of residential in there versus mm-hmm. commercial, right?
1: Yeah, I hadn't realized that.
0: Mark, you were mentioning at the start of the episode about our record warmth. Uh, and so, uh, Michael, your firm is uh, currently involved in some flood studies or some, uh, you know... Resiliency. Resiliency, I guess, yeah. How do we... So how... I guess the big question is, how screwed is is most of the U.S.? Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I saw some of the maps on the website. There's quite a swath of Boston, and I can imagine, you know, some people say, like, all of Miami will be underwater in 50 years. Can you tell us what you've learned thus far through these studies and what we can do to, you know, I guess as developers, what can we expect
2: to have to do to build for the future? Yeah, I mean, I I think when you look big picture at the whole country, there's very little of it that's going to be, you know, impacted by this, but when you look at the city of Boston, there's a lot of it, right? So, I, I mean, I think you know, you know, Boston is one of the more vulnerable cities in the country, or in the world, for that matter. As is Miami. What we've been mostly looking at is the problem of, all right? Let's say you own a triple decker, you know, and you're you're in a flood zone, right? The lowest level apartment that you have is within the DFE, the design flood elevation. That unit at some point is going to become non-viable, right? And it's the minute it starts getting flooded on a yearly or every other yearly basis that it, that it's that it's no longer usable, right? So the, the question really becomes, um, how do you allow for people who have that real estate that is existing on the coast to not have to just walk away from their building? And are there ways that you can uh, allow them to build something in the backyard of it, which extends, um, you know, their, or increases the amount of rentable or saleable space they've got, but they can build it above the design, flood elevation, put another floor on top of it, um, you know, find ways that that allow people to recoup at least some of the value that will be lost as, you know, as, as water, you know, sea level rise continues to come in. You know, that really is the, one of the primary things that we're looking to do is figure out how to solve those existing conditions. Like if you look at, the South End. Uh, in, um, do you live in the South End, Mark?
1: I work in the South End. I know you work there, yeah. I live in East Boston, though, so I'm not much
2: better. Yeah, and so, yeah, parts of East Boston are, you know, um, but if you look at the typical... top floor, though. You're good? <laughs> I, mean, is it, I mean, would Logan
0: Airport be uh, impacted by that?
2: That's a <laughs> massive area. It is a big area. Um, you, you know, I, I, I don't think we, we look much at Logan Airport, but of course it will be impacted in certain ways. The question is, for the short, short term, when I say short term, I mean the next fifty to seventy years. Most of what we're talking about uh, being in these flood zones are going to be flooded for, you know, several hours a few times a year. Not ideal, but you can recover from it as long as the uses that are in those areas are, you know, ones that can recover. Um, so, for instance, we see a lot of um, a lot of uses in the seaport um, now that are below the the you know the
1: base desert, flood elevation,
2: flood yeah. elevation, yeah that are, um, you know, putting parking there basically, right? You have to deal with this this uh, distance between or this height uh, dimension between sidewalk and first floor, which is very tricky, but there's ways to do that. Especially
1: with handicap concerns.
2: Yep, absolutely. that's um, contradict. Yeah, and so um, lots of interesting solutions to that. Um, but there are ways to, you know, design these plinths and these beautiful stairs that have ramps and planters and all that that get you up to... Um, you know, a ground floor and allow you to slip parking underneath that. So then, you know, all right, there's a flood coming. There's, you know, a storm coming. A tidal surge is likely to happen. Let's just get the cars out, right, and move them somewhere to dry ground for, for, you know, a few hours and then move them back afterwards. That tends to be the way that's being handled.
1: It's a pretty ugly pedestrian experience to walk by a bunch of parking garages at,
2: at grade. So you should consult our guidelines, which yeah. show you how, how to deal with that. Just you know, in a beautiful very beautiful parking in rashes. a very beautiful urbanistic way. <laughs> well, no, that they're they're kind of semi below grade, yeah. um, and and that you know the ways of dealing with those buildings and how you mitigate between high sidewalk, low sidewalk, mm-hmm. um, and those connections. I think you know they're resolvable. They're they're not you know they're not um, they're not what we all like to 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 think of as these you know beautiful wide sidewalks that. Like, go directly into a retail or restaurant space mm-hmm. or, or, a, or a commercial lobby but um but there are certainly ways to make up that difference that that are not you know terribly unsightly.
0: So you're telling us that it's not all gloom and
2: doom there. There are ways to resolve it and we shouldn't be too worried about it. Well, we should be very <laughs> worried about it. But uh but uh yeah, there are certainly ways to solve it. Um, Perfect. Yeah.
3: What are some of the new hot trends in the architecture industry? So 2020 what in any like, types of facades, materials, what are, what, what are the what latest? What should we
1: look for in Las Vegas at the Builder show next
3: week? <laughs> <laughs> the hot wrap with
2: this. Energy efficiency is the hot trend. All yeah. right. Um, you know, that, that, that's, uh, I mean, I think, I, I think finding better ways to, 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 uh, to occupy our buildings on, on lower amounts of energy is the number one thing that, that is going through everybody's mind, I think in the design world. Um, you know, and some of those some of those ways are, you know, frankly, going to make much better buildings uh, in the future. You know, I, I think um, we we've got uh, uh, a new director of sustainability um, who who has a great pitch on all of this. But in 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 general, you know, the point is we can spend a lot less money on the stuff which is going up through the chimney. Focus it on the building uh, and and on better envelopes, and those better envelopes then give you much more comfortable environments to live within um, at at much lower energy. So, I would say that. That's, that's the hot trend right And And it's also, it's, um, it's not just a trend, right? It's something, it's a real problem we have to solve as well. So I think at the same time, I always, I always like to find the opportunity in these things. And I think the, um, with all of the new mechanical equipment, uh, new ways of delivering heat and cooling to buildings, new ways of reducing energy use in certain ways, um, the impact that those types of performative measures are going to have on buildings and architecture is going to really reshape the way we think about buildings.
1: Cool. Well, nice. we could definitely do a second episode and bring uh, your sustainability director on, talk about passive houses and uh, and some of that stuff. But for now, this has been awesome. We really appreciate your time. This
2: has been great. Yeah.
0: If people want to reach out to you, learn more about the firm and what you can Follow do for U-TL. them. What's uh, Where do you want to send them?
2: Well, we—I mean, we have a—we have a robust website, uh, which has our phone number on it. So I think they, they should feel free to always reach out and contact—contact uh, contact the office. I—I, uh, I, you know, I've spent a good part of my day fielding calls um, on all kinds of things, anyway. So happy to always chat, uh, and always happy to have people in the office and walk them around. It's a pretty cool space.
1: Absolutely, awesome. Hey, thank you again, Thanks, Michael.
2: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.